Welcome to the Red S Recovery Podcast. My name is Charlotte Gibbs and in this podcast I will discuss relative energy deficiency in sport, how it affects individual athletes and how recovery can be achieved. Hi everybody and welcome to episode two. In this episode I'm joined by Rachel Langbane. Rachel is a PhD researcher pursuing her doctoral studies at the University of Lincoln in the UK. Her research focuses on the lived experience of athletes who are affected by low energy availability and she's particularly interested in the psychological journey which this can entail. She hopes that by further understanding the mental conflicts and barriers athletes face in overcoming low energy availability that person-centred tailored prevention and intervention programmes can be developed that, and that clinicians and health, sport and exercise professionals can be better equipped to support their athletes. Her drive to pursue this research has been shaped by her own personal experience as an ex-distance athlete with disordered eating and compulsive exercise, which drove her out of the sport and the athlete bubble. While this helped her to overcome her physical battles, however, this by no means meant the psychological struggles went away. In an era of social media likes, validation and comparison, and a culture of move more and eat less, she is specifically interested in exploring whether it is really possible to recover, be truly healthy, whilst continuing to be a successful and high-performing athlete. I'm really excited by this interview, and I really hope that those of you who listen to it will get something interesting from it. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, not at all. I'm really, really glad to be part of it. I think what you're doing is absolutely brilliant. Oh, thank you. So we met originally back at the Train Brave launch event in London. Um, and then we spoke on Skype after that. I, You interviewed me as part of your research. So it's really kind of you to come and um, allow me to interview you. Not at all. We're just returning each other's favours. And I think it's really exciting. We've got kind of two different streams of research going, as it were. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's start. I think let's just launch straight in. Um, I'd really like you to tell us about your own experience um, as a and I think, as you said, you were an ex-distance athlete with your own yes. history of disordered eating. Um, so let's talk a little bit about that and then how that's informed your research and your academic work. Yes, definitely. So, I mean, I'll, I'll try and keep it relatively short. I, I do have a tendency to ramble, but um, unfortunately, my own experience is, is not dissimilar at all to um, thousands and thousands of sort of anecdotes and social media posts and sort of uh, articles that we're seeing uh, from athletes nowadays. Um, in that I, as you said, I was a distance runner, sort of 1500, 3000 meters, I did some steeplechase on the track. Uh, loved my cross country, uh, but I was what you'd probably, you know, regard as a club runner, an average club runner going off to university. But this was quite a renowned university for track and field. And within about really probably four to six weeks, I just had this complete fixation on being the best academic I could and the best runner alongside that. And actually, we should probably flip those over in terms of importance, because I think I went there, I embedded myself in well quite a big pond I was a small fish in a big pond I felt and just thought gosh these athletes around me are so successful how do I get there you know I'm, I'm fairly average but I, I think I, I think I've got something but how do I do it um 
And unfortunately, you know, there was a, a very strong culture of training harder and faster and better and uh, doing more uh, and sadly eating less. Um, I think actually that was quite unconscious to begin with. But I, what I was seeing was very successful sort of uh, England vest and GB athletes um, who were very, very slight, very thin, uh, seemingly doing double days and triple days and training hard. Uh, and alongside this, I was actually studying sport and exercise science, um, which again isn't uncommon for somebody who is, is quite a keen uh, athlete themselves. And yeah, I just, I started to notice, I was surprised actually how soon I noticed my own behaviors changing. So I just began to restrict what I was eating again, almost subconsciously, um, but thinking, well, you know, I just need to be the healthiest I can be. I was absolutely never um, dissatisfied with my weight or with my body image. I don't think I, I probably had never known my weight until that age. I was 18. It had never been something I was concerned by. Uh, however, over time and you know, throughout my modules of learning about energy systems and, and uh, you know, fueling for performance and eating perfectly and like the perfect athlete, I just fell down the, you know, this vicious, vicious cycle of train more, eat less or eat better, eat healthier. Uh, and, and my, you know, my view of what was healthy became very skewed. And this, you know, this just sort of continued throughout, you know, the first first couple of years of my my university experience I'll fast forward a little bit because essentially as I say I recognized this in myself quite early I, I remember contacting an individual who had done her own blog post about her own disordered eating struggles uh, and injury uh, and I at the time had become injured I had a suspected stress fracture uh, in the tibia and I was miserable I was like I, I can't train as much therefore surely I shouldn't eat as much um but actually it's hurting to cross train, but you know, I'm going for it, whatever, I'm just going to continue. And I spoke to her and I sort of said, well, how did you get to this point where, you know, you're now injury free, you're enjoying your running. And she said, you've just got to be strong and you've got to stop what you're doing. You need to, you know, cut back that, that exercise, that cross training, allow your body to heal else. It's never going to be the strong athlete's body that you need. Uh, and I think that was sort of one of, of many kind of triggers that, actually made a positive impact on me uh that's but, that's yeah. so interesting um just just quickly before mm. we go into um your academic work um yes. when you were a student and you were obviously going through this mm. were there any sources of support available for you through say the coaching system or the sports system in the university you were at um it's a difficult one with that because i think again one of my perhaps big realizations that I might have something going on um, came after our coaching staff had actually put on an information event. I think we had uh, somebody come and speak about their own experiences with obviously things like overtraining or not fueling adequately and, and injuries and other things that come with that. And I just remember I looked in my phone uh, recently, my old phone notes that I had written around that time and among the millions of different shopping lists I had written um, and recipes I had had this woman's email address and clearly that had struck a chord because she had said if anyone wants to hear more about kind of my experiences and and how you can kind of help yourself with these things then do get in touch but beyond that it, it felt almost as if there was some unsaid or unwritten rules or cultures as I say of that atmosphere and that actually everyone was going through the same thing no one was really getting their periods it was kind of normal um 
and um, although coaching staff was supportive because it's quite a difficult issue to for the athlete to bring up themselves if you're not making it explicitly obvious that something's going on and outwardly aesthetically maybe something doesn't appear to be to coaching staff I think it can be quite difficult for them to to know and that's something that I obviously I'm now very passionate about educating kind of athlete entourages about this sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting mm. point that you make about the difficulty in actually addressing these things and speaking about these things, particularly because when you're in them yourself, mm. there's that weird cognitive cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. Um, Something I'm sure where, we'll discuss. Yeah. Yeah, where you know yourself. I mean, I think when I look back at some of my own training diaries, I would constantly be writing things like, I don't feel great. I feel like I'm overtrained. Mm. What? You know, why am I? Why am I not feeling good on this run? And I and I look back and I know I know I knew, mm. but yet yeah. I wasn't able to take that step to actually do anything about it. Definitely. And I think that, you know, no matter what the coaches were saying, mm. I could have gone to as many talks or conversations yes. about it as possible. But it's so difficult to actually take that step yourself until Very much something so. clicks. Yeah, in you. it's just such just such a huge element that you know until now really hasn't been uh, appropriately kind of recognised in this area. So. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So the more the more that we can normalize these mm. conversations around it, I think the easier it will be for people. Oh, for sure. Mm. So so let's come on to how you then decided that you wanted to do this as part of your academic work. Yes, definitely. So, well, essentially towards the kind of end of that second year uh, and approaching my third year of um, of university, I had completely sadly lost the love of competing. I began to run for, you know, completely the wrong reasons. Suddenly there was a body image element, there was a weight element, and I was just miserable. I would go to training, uh, I'd feel very irritable, sort of uh, jealous of other athletes doing better in their reps or in their, you know, um, different types of session they were doing. And I remember one session, just getting my spikes off, putting my trainers on and running home. And that was the last ever competitive training session I did at, at the at the university um, and then so I kind of had to take myself out of the sport I felt in order to psychologically heal from it as it were but I'd say that's something I'm now still uh, experiencing therefore over the years that have followed I have just become more and more and more passionate about talking to athletes understanding these journeys of athletes who do remain in the sphere or perhaps are taken out of that bubble uh, driven out of that bubble by these sorts of struggles and how we can actually you know aid the recovery of these individuals um, you know to enable them to actually enjoy their sport uh, enjoy exercise enjoy participation in different activities uh, without being hindered by these kind of barriers so I was just wondering what do you think came first do you think that you first had an eating disorder or you were likely to get an eating disorder outside of your experience in, in sport or do you think it was your experience in sport and as an athlete that then caused you to develop the behaviors which led you to the point that uh, you've been describing so i mean a very typical answer to to quite a probably million dollar question as it were like that is that i think there are definite um sort of there are things to support both sides of that 
in that I definitely feel that my personality, my my high achieving traits and my kind of desire to always do better and do more um, and be quite hard on myself as an individual. That's not uncommon um, in things like eating disorders and obsessive kind of addictive behaviors. Um, but for me and myself, in terms of actually applying that to food, there was absolutely no trace or evidence of that um, kind of in my upbringing or my childhood, interestingly. Um, as I say, though, going back to personality, I was a very, very self-conscious individual. I always cared what people think, thought about me. I had to be everybody's best friend. If I wasn't, there was clearly something wrong with me. And I, I do I do feel, though, that the university and the environment I was then sort of, um, well, plunged into was such a high achieving one, did have such kind of sociological and cultural norms of, of being the best and being the thinnest and being the lightest that those fed into some of the insecurities I had. So had I not been a runner, had I not gone to university at that stage, I do personally believe that actually over time, in whatever environment I would then go into, be it a career or a different sort of sporting pursuit or activity, some of those things may still have come out and probably applied themselves uh, to food. I think I was in a, a situation that was out of my control. I was moving somewhere new. Uh, kind of just having to fend for myself uh, and therefore food became that that coping mechanism and I, I, again I don't think that's that's uncommon um, on the other side of things in terms of did it come after as I say I think it's those environments and, and this emphasis on food and being a healthy athlete that that made me focus on food but but one thing I will say is um, I've, I've been doing obviously uh, some of my PhD research I'm only in my first year um, but in that year I've done one research study as you as you alluded to of, of being involved in I, I spoke to to another lady uh, who said well I just think it's completely my personality I um, whether I'd if I'd not gone into sport I'd not gone into to the dancer um, I may have ended up you know, getting in with the wrong crowd and doing drugs um, and getting addicted to alcohol. She said it wouldn't have mattered. Whatever the environment was, I was an obsessive compulsive individual and I would have attached those obsessions and addictions to something else. Um, so I think personality is, is definitely a huge aspect, but environment also comes comes very much into play. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And I think the environmental side of things hasn't really been addressed mm -hmm. as well as it might be um, amongst some ways of talking about this problem. And when you look at the psychological drivers that that lie behind the mm -hmm. physical manifestations of Red S, so the compulsive exercise, the desire for control, the desire for restriction. I mean, these are obviously psychological um, symptoms, which mm -hmm. also can be seen in you know standard eating disorders um mm. ocd type behaviors other kind of addictive pathologies um but in our case for whatever reason it's become focused on our sport yes very much do you think that's the right way to look at red do you think that's a helpful way to approach it i definitely think so and i do think there needs to be more of a, a push and emphasis on the fact that this is you know this isn't this there is a slight nuance. There's a there's a difference between this and pure eating disorders and even eating disorders in sport. Uh, we cannot just apply the same models, um, you know, of, of anorexia and bulimia and other kind of clinical eating disorders to this athletic population. Athletes are a rare breed of individual. They have so many different individual needs, so many physical needs that 
again, some sort of emerging themes from my first study were that these professionals aren't trained uh, to really understand the, the, the individual uh, and specific needs of athletes and that actually these sorts of physical symptoms they may present with, with a lack of periods, with a recurrent injury, these aren't normal and they should not be um, kind of accepted as the norm. Um, I do think that the IOC consensus statement uh, on REDS, which you mentioned in your first episode, uh, I appreciate that they acknowledge um, psychological impairments as part of this syndrome, but there is simply just one line about it, and that is that um, psychological impairments can precede or result from REDS. Uh, but as, as we've both discussed, it's, this is something that actually there's no evidence yet really to support that. So I'm really trying to look at both sides of that kind of coin uh, and see what is most common um, in these individuals. And, and is there sort of an even balance or is it this initial restriction, this psychological stress that is causing individuals to, to you know, be in this state and then uh, other things come as a result? Uh, and that's, again, like I say, the million dollar question that I'm very much hoping to, to get closer to knowing. Well, we look, really look forward to the results of your research in this area. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the culture, the wider culture that um, might be an issue for athletes who are trying to negotiate this um, this pattern. So the culture of move more and eat less, for example, mm-hmm. or um, where you have an athlete with, who has red S or a person, say, who might be in recovery from disordered eating Mm -hmm. and they're constantly bombarded with this general conversation around the fetishization of certain eating patterns and how certain diets are considered to to be morally uh, better for or you know these ideas that you know if you go low carb or if you eat paleo you'll become a better person or a better athlete Um, but by extension it seems to be saying you'll be a better person if you eat this way Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit if you don't mind about Mm -hmm. um, about how these cultural influences might affect an athlete who's already um, susceptible to suffering from some of these problems? For sure, yes. I think these are just yet another um, kind of step and another um, kind of hindrance and frustration that is out there in in our everyday social world that just further kind of peddle this narrative of of looking better and better being lighter or better being leaner and you know these Instagram models being what we need to aspire to and seeing all these successful athletes that seemingly need to be thin to be beautiful and strong and successful um, whereas as we know with, with low energy availability and reds that, that's that's not the you know reality um, I certainly when I described a little bit about my university experience I was um part of this sort of clean eating era without realizing it I went off to university um, in this kind of time of everybody eating kale smoothies in the morning and then uh, you know fully plant-based lunches um, and again just vegetables for dinner I remember seeing one Instagram post of an individual who just ate broccoli and, and, and carrots for dinner and Although I was a highly educated sports scientist um, who knew I needed to feel my body and that I'd done so much exercise that day, I distinctly remember that evening um, that I'd seen that post of thinking, well, in order to be as good or better than her, I've got to, I've got to emulate that. And I, you know, steamed some vegetables that night. They tasted disgusting, put some ketchup on them, didn't finish them, went to bed 
absolutely ravenous and, and completely miserable. And um, I, I do remember us having a similar discussion, obviously, um, I won't go into detail, but I know that we, in, in my own research study, discussed similar where we were hearing from athletes doing these crazy, crazy things that we knew weren't really healthy. But in order to sort of trump them, we were thinking, right, well, we better go one better. Let's cut out a, you know, a whole new food group. Um, I don't need that. Or that's another thing I can avoid. Um, it's this calculation of calories, this obsession with numbers that is just absolutely everywhere. And um, this is a slight tangent, but I know that something we've also very briefly discussed is this this new Weight Watchers app, which I know doesn't necessarily come into um, the sphere of low energy availability as such in a specific focus, but from a restricting calories and a disordered eating culture, we're now encouraging our children who are the most carefree and you know relaxed individuals to grow up and become obsessed by what they're eating and this really really concerns me especially if this then feeds into those who are becoming very active um, in their early life uh, oh so, I totally agree yeah. because there's no there's no qualification in that app about mm. any form of physical activity mm. um, there's no warning about fueling your physical activity it's mm-hmm. just uh, to me it just seems like a window into um, into an eating disorder and it's absolutely appalling that this is being marketed towards children yeah. I completely agree with you on that uh, for me what I what was really interesting was that I found calorie counting. I never really was a calorie counter. I always sort of vaguely knew how many calories I was eating, but I never really, really counted them obsessively or anything like that. But the thing that really helped me was the energy availability calculation. Yes. Because rather than being told, oh, you need to eat X number of calories, I suddenly was able to see really clearly that with the energy availability calculation, I was somehow that got through to me Mm. where nothing else did. Um, And I don't entirely know why, but that for me was my light bulb moment is when I actually sat down and calculated my energy availability and realized how much lower it was than I probably assumed it would be. Um, even though I had a watch which told me how many calories I supposedly was burning yeah. every day and and I could technically understand oh well maybe I need to eat this amount but mm-hmm. it that that didn't work for me but the yeah. energy availability thing did yeah and do you do you almost think I know I'm flipping the interview I'm being the interview and <laughs> I'm coming back into my research uh, realm but do you almost think that that's because low energy availability was a bit more relatable to you and your sport and something that you obviously wanted to kind of ensure that you were able to keep doing, whereas your your Garmin and your perhaps Strava watches and things are telling you, yeah, for the average individual, you might need to eat this or it might be tailored to you, but this is a bit more clinical, a bit more, well, you're in this kind of red zone. I don't know. Did, was that, did that come into it, do you think? No, I think that's exactly what it was. I think it was because it was individualized. Um, so I think... It was all very well somebody saying to me, oh, you need to eat X number of calories because mm. then my brain would be like, oh, well, maybe that's too much. What if that's too yeah. much? What's the context? How have you worked that out? What mm. if I ha- but when I saw it in terms of energy availability, which I knew was factored directly 
into what I had done and my own lean body mass, which had actually been scientifically worked out for me at Loughborough University. Yeah. So I knew that was correct as well, which is just shows, I guess, that little bit of um, obsessive brain mm. um, way of thinking where you, you where you think, well, this has to be absolutely accurate at all times. Yes. But that definitely was the doorway for me into mm. actually understanding that I wasn't eating mm. enough um, and that it wasn't just a conspiracy to make me fat, which exactly. I think otherwise yeah. I might have thought. Sometimes quite a hard oh. thing to get your head around and that not everybody's out to get you and try and, yeah, uh, and not and not let you achieve your goals <laughs> if it works. It is. It's ridiculous, isn't it? One thing I wanted to ask you was mm. about the realities of health and high performance. So do you think that being a healthy individual and being a high performance athlete is mutually exclusive. Oh, you've gone for the two million dollar question. <laughs> doubly as difficult as that first one. Well, the slight cop out answer is that I really, really hope that with my my three years at, at minimum of study, that that is the kind of question that I'll, you know, I will be able to substantiate a little bit more. I really want to know: is it possible to be, you know, a really high level performer? be healthy, consistently healthy, consistently sort of running, cycling, swimming, rowing, whatever it is, you know, and even beyond those endurance sports, doing those to a very high standard whilst being mentally and physically uh, healthy. I I think it's, a, it's very much a double-edged sword and it's a, a very, very fine balance. I do think it's achievable, but I think Sadly, um, with kind of the resources that we have at the moment and the knowledge we do have around the area, it's only those elite individuals who have a, you know, a therapist, a physiotherapist. They may have a cognitive behavioral therapist or sports psychologist. They have a medical doctor that's involved with them. They've got their coach and athletic trainer. You know, the list goes on. Those individuals can be kind of sufficiently educated and I don't want to say the word convinced, but obviously cognitively and psychologically worked with to get them to a space where they know what's needed, but to to find that balance. Uh, and my concern uh, really is for those sub-elite individuals and even then we go down the sort of chain of competition to really recreational gym goers, um, exercisers, just people who are trying to be active, but receiving all of these kind of, uh, you know, um, social media posts and, and, and media and messages about what they should be doing. It's those who then, in the, you know, the absence of real hard evidence um, and information, will, will really struggle. So, yes, I believe that at the moment it could, could well be achievable for those with the support around them. We really need to work on that kind of middle band as well to uh, enable all exercising individuals to, to have the tools to, to get them get themselves in that space. I do think it's possible, but we've kind of got a way to go with it, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Thank you. And that's something that I've said um, a few times myself um, on um, a podcast that I did, this this problem that whereby people who are exactly mm. in that sub-elite level seem to be the most prone to falling into these problems because they don't have access to the really structured guidance that say uh, an elite or funded athlete is going to have and but they're just good enough to be able to push their bodies in in yeah. the way that they're almost training like an elite 
but they don't Mm. have the support and guidance around them, which might prevent them from making the mistakes that lead them into um, a position Mm. of ill health and and problems. I think you make a really good point there. Yeah, Um, I I wouldn't want to be, you know, I hope hopefully that didn't come across as, as too negative because I do, you know, I would love to actually reassure people that there is so much that can be done and that I myself you know again I will try not to ramble but I have come so 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 much further than I was and am now at a point where yes I had to take myself out of that kind of sphere but you know I, I couldn't really break up with running it wasn't possible it was a huge part of my life and it's something I now participate in in a much healthier space in my mind but I what I'm almost acknowledging is that any setback or anything where you think, well, I'm still not better, I'm still not better, acknowledge and celebrate the successes and the small little setbacks. Just appreciate that they may be part of who you are. It's how you respond to them. Um, again, psychology being just such a strong element. It's how you manage your kind of environment and your own little triggers uh, that will really ultimately determine whether you feel you can continue to be in that space and be enjoying it. Um, so I, I think there's real hope. For individuals who engage and are self-aware of, of what they're doing and that perhaps it's not right and therefore how can they get to a place that, that it is a little bit more healthy for them. Yeah I think that's a really important uh, message to put out there so thank you so much. Um, I wanted to ask you about the approach to treatment um, of red S and associated disorders in athletes and how you think that that could be improved um, from the present model? Yeah, I think that's a really, a really huge part of obviously how we now move forward. We've identified that so many athletes are kind of, I think they're in this sort of recognition stage of what's going on. They're being given the education, but then is there the linked up support? Um, touching on again, my, my, my results from my first study aren't yet published, so I won't go into, you know, delve into too much depth. Um, but in terms of some of those themes, a common theme throughout the interviews I, I did was that the professional support was really lacking. Um, Again, it wasn't athlete centred and, and athletes were being told, oh, just stop exercising. <laughs> and, and, you know, everything we've discussed over the last sort of half hour, 40 minutes, it, it just lends to this narrative that, you know, athletes, it's not viable for them to just suddenly stop. There's a lot of psychological distress that comes with that. So uh, one thing I, I personally, um, through the research that I'm doing and just the things that I'm reading around this topic, I do personally believe that a form of psychological therapy um, you know, from a sports psychologist or cognitive behavioural therapist in, in specifically, uh, is really vital and really key, again, for this self-awareness of what are somebody's triggers, what, what are these sources of distress they're dealing with, and how can they actually bridge that gap to change their behaviour. From more of a medical standpoint, uh, I do believe we need more health professionals, more medical professionals, um, clued up on what, what REDS really is, um, and that it's not just this blanket underfueling overtraining it's not just an eating disorder it's not necessarily an eating disorder um and not to just brush you know amenorrhea this lack of periods or bone health off as oh you're just very active stop stop being as active um one thing uh, again a really positive real positive that came from my research was when i was talking to individuals about their recovery those who self-identified as uh, you know, near to fully recovered in their own minds uh, were those who actually worked with a dietitian as well. Um, and I know very many individuals, especially those who have suffered with disordered eating, will have 
reservations about this. They might think, oh, no, but I'm going to be given a really rigid plan and then I'll, I'll never be able to, you know, uh, get away from that. But the reality is sometimes that's what's needed for personalities that are so rigid and obsessive and addictive. They need something to stick to. But from an informed individual who is actually trying to slowly, yes, get them to, to, to eat more and perhaps exercise less. But as you say, and it links into this individual is not trying to make you fat, <laughs> make you slow and make you not perform well. Um, but that was a real standout finding in that significant others in, in people's recovery journeys were huge. And from a medical standpoint, dietitians and nutritionists um, being the, the main uh, kind of health professionals that were actually helping and not hindering that journey. Um, that's so I do a, think that's, that's, that's interesting. That's a fascinating point, And thank you so much for saying that. And I think it's worth saying that under the current system, say, in the NHS at the moment, if you're getting treatment um, through where I've been getting treatment, for example, through uh, the um, sports medicine clinic attached to the NHS hospital and there is no nutritional or dietetic support included in that treatment for that, you have to go Mm -hmm. private. Mm -hmm. And that's, yeah, again, so it's this accessibility that I really hope that we can begin to, to again, like I say, bridge that gap. I think it mainly comes down to education. The more is known by, you know, the general population about this, that it's not just high performing athletes. This is a kind of societal issue. Uh, the more again, people can, can become more aware of what's going on. Um, but, yeah, I do think, you know, obviously I peddle the psychology element because I just think there's such a lack of it. But something that I you know, I really did want to briefly mention was this idea of cognitive dissonance that you said earlier. Um, It will probably sound quite a long, uh, complicated word to many athletes, um, but I would guarantee that a lot of people who maybe have listened to your first episode are athletes themselves, uh, starting to realise that maybe some of their behaviours, their habits may not be conducive to high performance. Um, And what they're really experiencing there is, is cognitive dissonance. And this is this concept that a person can hold you know, a variety of beliefs, two or more beliefs that contradict with one another, um, and that can cause discomfort. So, as I said, someone might have listened to your podcast and thought, oh, gosh, I thought I needed to be lighter to be faster, or I thought I didn't deserve to eat more. But this person is telling me that actually that might make me really unwell and I might not be performing as well as I could. And it's this new information that causes this discomfort because it's contradicting what they thought. And then there's this real battle to to know how to behave. Do I now avoid that situation altogether? Um, pretend that I haven't heard that information. Uh, try and come up with reasons that it's not true. Or do I listen to it and start to change my beliefs and behaviours? And that is I, I'm absolutely fascinated by that. But uh, I don't want to get too, too, uh, too complex at at the end of this interview (laughs) no I think I think it's a really important point and I think it's something that we all probably suffer from to some degree because Mm. we're all having to make these choices every day do I go for this run even though I might not feel entirely right to do it Mm. do I eat this bit of food or do I not eat this bit of food and something that I've learned myself in my recovery is that I've had to teach myself to do the opposite of the things that in the past I would have considered the correct things to do so say Mm. my brain would say to me you must finish this run even though your leg hurts I had to learn that no the right thing to do is Mm -hmm. not not to finish the run because my leg hurts 
And it's a lot of brain retraining and getting mm-hmm. out of these really deeply, deeply um, embedded belief systems which lie behind, I think, the problems which um, which we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, actually, is um, looking at non-traditional groups. So we've been talking very much about um endurance athletes because that's what we both are slash were um but i know that there are members of the facebook groups that um, that i moderate and other people who've contacted me who are in very untraditional sports so i know there's a couple of people who come from combat sports um and there's a lady from equestrian sports so i'm wondering if you've done any work at all on these sort of slightly less traditional areas and what you might think about how we we could reach out to them. I really do think that these uh, sort of wider groups and potentially less common, again, in the research or even in the media, uh, groups or individual sports that are clearly um, affected by this issue, but it's not evident. I think they really do need to be looked at. I did attempt to do so um, in my first study, actually. And interestingly, the majority of the interest I got was from endurance athletes. Um, I believe that about 70% of my sample were distance athletes, uh, ultra runners, triathletes, uh, for example. Um, and again, I think that's because it's becoming less taboo, but more so in these sports where it's always been uh, documented. So the female athlete triad, although it was identified that, you know, it's kind of any athlete who um you know, maybe had disordered eating or be in low energy availability and suffering from poor bone health and menstruation. A lot of the literature was around um, endurance athletes. And I think even in the media now with all of these different articles and things we're seeing, there's such a bias towards that or, you know, again, a lack of well, that taboos being broken down. But then where are the voices of those who are in sports and they think, oh, well, it, it shouldn't be an issue. Maybe I'm not suffering from those things because I'm not doing as much as those or I'm not in an endurance sport. Uh, so as I say, I, I did try to recruit uh, all individuals from all across different sporting spheres, um, yet it seems to be those who are close to feeling like they've recovered in an endurance sport who seem more willing to talk. Um, I am now in the process of, uh, about to be in the process of recruiting for a second study, uh, and I'm very, very keen to get some more inclusion from, as you say, some of the, potentially some of these people in this group where they feel like they're maybe out on a limb and they're on their own and, and they don't quite align with some of these things that all the endurance athletes are talking about. Or they're ticking a couple of boxes on reds and think, oh, I'm not that unwell, though, because I'm not ticking them all. Whereas, as you identified in that first episode, it it, it really doesn't matter if, if some of those things are going on for you and you and there are conscious um, awarenesses that you're perhaps restricting or overtraining, uh, then you two are definitely, you know, at risk. So in a yeah, long convoluted way of answering your question, sadly, that's still not represented, those different groups. Um, and sadly, I've not yet been able to do so myself. But it's something I'm very, very much keen to do. Uh, and I think we need to, again, stop this narrative that it's just happening to runners um, and it's still mainly happening to females. I'm very keen to talk to male athletes um, because until we get those voices heard, people will still believe it's just this traditional focus um, you know, in runners, in thin runners who cross the line first um, and then burn out and never to be seen again. And we, we've really got to change that narrative, I believe.
Well, I think that the work that you're doing is certainly going to go a long way to helping. So thank you so, so much for doing this podcast with me. Um, Before we go, where can we learn more about you and your work? Right. So, gosh, never done sort of a plug before me. And I'm very um, boring on social media in that. I mean, no, no, I'm quite entertaining on social media, but I'm, my sort of taglines and things are very much just my name. So um, on Twitter, where I will be um, disseminating my research information in hopefully about a month's time when the ethics have gone through. I'm at Rachel Langbein. Um, I'm sure my name will be written on the podcast, but uh, I've got a funny old surname. It means long leg in German and it's L-A-N-G-B-E-I-N. Uh, I'm very, same on Instagram, Rachel Langbein. Um and things like LinkedIn as well. I'll be trying to put the study information out there on Facebook. Rachel Langbein, again, not original, um, but there aren't too many of me. So just look for a similar face that's on the picture of this podcast. Uh, and hopefully if you go on Google or Google Scholar in the near future, uh, some of my papers will start to be published. So uh, I can really get some more information out there. But my real focus is just hearing from athletes. It isn't about me. It's about getting the voice of those who are struggling and who have struggled out there to the the wider population well thank you so much for the work that you've been doing and we really look forward to seeing what's come from your research because i think it's going to be really exciting thank Thank you so so much i've really really enjoyed being on the podcast Uh, it's always great to chat to you Thank you so much for listening to this our second episode i really look forward to recording more and i hope that you'll join me to explore even more aspects of relative energy deficiency in sport please like and share this podcast if you've enjoyed it share it on your social media and let people know if you found it useful